Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to another episode of Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mental health and life. In this episode, I interview registered psychotherapist Megan Watson on how to begin healing from trauma, the different types of therapy techniques, and how to find the right one for you, how to navigate life as an empath, and signs of chronic invalidation, and what to do about this. Megan also shares some tips and techniques on how to manage your inner critic, improve self-acceptance, and so much more. Megan is a registered psychotherapist who focuses on supporting people experiencing struggles with their mood, anxiety, eating disorders, and body image issues. She provides warm, non-judgmental therapy to individuals and couples. Megan has worked as a therapist in both Canada and the US and has extensive experience in the fields of eating disorders, LGBTQ and gender affirming healthcare, substance use and behavioral addictions, complex trauma, mood disorders and anxiety disorders. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends and family and keep sharing about it on social media. I love seeing what you guys found helpful. And now, on to today's episode. Megan, I'm so excited to interview you today. You deal with such important topics in your practice, and I'm really thrilled that you're joining me today to explain all these important things. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. Good. That's fantastic. Well, tell us a bit about yourself, your bio. What Tell us what's not in your bio. And, you know, what motivates you and why do you do what you do? So, I mean, what's in my bio is that I'm a registered psychotherapist, but what's not in my bio is that I'm really nerdy and passionate about my job. <laughs> That's lovely. I love it. <laughs> okay, we, 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 we're the same on that. We're both the same on that. I'm also totally, totally nerdy about my job, so <laughs> I get that. I don't, I don't put that first. I don't advertise that as <laughs> the first thing, but yeah, I'm, I'm super passionate about the work I do, specifically the clinical component and the education component. I love to teach and to to break down clinical jargon for people and for my clients because I think mental health needs to be accessible in in more ways than just cost. And mm-hmm. so I think it's important to to stay motivated because I remember the times when you know I didn't think I could do what I could do now. And so I think you know imposter syndrome is a real thing and to yeah attention to the times where you thought that you weren't going to make it or you weren't sure whether or not you were deserving of being there. Those are what keeps me motivated and keeps me passionate. 
I love that. I love also what you said there about breaking down the mental health jargon because there is so much. And I think sometimes therapists and, and just the medical community in general are just great at hiding behind jargon. And what we need to do is say it. That's okay because you've got to have these names, but you know, breaking it down into accessible, what is it, is so important. Then it makes it much more. I think it just brings the whole concept of mental health into our hands. So on that note, you are, as you said, a registered psychotherapist. And as you heard from your, you know, your great bio at the beginning, you've also got training in dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is ACT, cognitive behavioral therapy, relational cultural psychotherapy, unified focus, protocols for transdiagnostic treatment of emotional disorders, and the Gottman Method couples therapy level two. So there's a, that's a lot there. And I know when people go into therapy, it's like, should I go? How do I choose a therapist? What do I do in the therapy? Okay, so you're good at unpacking and making it simple. So define, simplify, and make it accessible for us. When you say it all like that in a list, it seems (laughs) so much more intimidating than it really is. So, I mean, to be perfectly frank, these are all different tools that therapists can use and pick up at any time to, you know, support mental health issues like anxiety and depression. And to break it down a little bit more, cognitive behavioral therapy, first and foremost, is a type of therapy that focuses on your thoughts, your feelings, and what you do as a result. So your behaviors. So it's really, when I describe this to clients, I really say like, I care about what you think. I care about how you think, and I care about what you say to yourself. When it comes to DBT, which is the the therapy of dialectics, which is more than one thing can be true. It's a philosophical background behind that therapy. It's really around management of your emotional world. How do you tolerate distress? How do you understand and make sense of your moods and your feelings? And so that's a really important piece to take into consideration. And I use it a lot because it it has that piece of, you know, more than one thing can be true. So I'm I'm really always identifying the gray. I love that. Yeah, it's it's context. You're looking at the big picture. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Acceptance and commitment therapy is one of my favorites. It is a newer, it's like a different wave of behavioral therapies. It really is focused on three main things underneath the umbrella of psychological flexibility, right? So when we think about psychological flexibility, we're thinking about how do we start to feel more bendy, more flexible in relation to the things that we struggle with? right? Whether that's our moods, our thoughts, the stories we tell about ourselves, our beliefs about our world, our relationships. And so it's about getting present, doing what matters. So focusing on your values and opening up. So kind of opening to new thoughts, feelings, and experiences. And that's why I love ACT so much because it's just Mm -hmm. so encompassing of all those different things that you might get in CBT or you might get in CBT. Yeah, I agree with you. And so many therapists that I interview, they say the same thing, that ACT is much more, it's kind of almost all of them together. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a package deal. Yeah, 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 it is. Very much so. And then you mentioned the Gottman Method for Couples Therapy. Yeah, so the Gottman Method is really the brainchild of two really amazing and famous researchers, John and Julie Gottman. And 
essentially what they've done is to develop a type of couples therapy based on the research. And they've done years and years of research of how couples think, what happens, how you develop intimacy. And so it really is about developing a shared meaning together. So when I see a couple, I'm really establishing, you know, what is their couple identity? How do they build a map of what their love and their intimacy looks like? And then how do you develop that shared meaning, which has a lot of those attachment, relationship, emotion components behind it. So I, I love yeah. the Gottman method because it is grounded in this understanding of the research and the science behind what makes people tick <laughs> in relationships. Yeah. But it's also really focused on, well, how do we make this work for us in terms of our values and our shared beliefs? I love it. What a great, and what have we, what haven't we covered? No, that's everything. We've covered all of it. And basic psychotherapy. So give, give a, a definition of, of, the basic definition of psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is really the, you know, the study and the application by psychotherapists or psychologists. It's a controlled act, usually in most places. So that means it's regulated by a governing body on how you may treat normalize, create theory, and develop an understanding of your thoughts, moods, cognitions, beliefs, and how to treat them with intention and support. And so that's not the dictionary definition, but it's my definition. No, that's a nice, easy definition. And it generally involves a lot of talking and digging around and and quite a lot of time. It takes some time. So some talk Mm. therapy can be pretty capped in terms of, you know, six to 12 sessions to do a specific structured modality. Like if your therapist is a CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapist, they might run you through six to 12 sessions of a CBT protocol, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit more structured. If you are going to a therapist like myself, I'm a little bit more integrative. I use a lot of different approaches. So we'll pick up skills and education and learning as you kind of describe the experiences in your life. So sometimes people may come in and want to talk about their work and what's going on in terms of their work stress. Some people might come in and and want to talk about, you know, parenting and how it's such a struggle right now with the pandemic to feel like you're doing a good job Mm. and to give yourself that validation. And, you know, it can really be so varied. So I always start every session asking the clients, okay, where do we begin? Right. I love that. Okay, so what, I, what I'm hearing you say, first of all, thank you. You defined that beautifully. And that's, I think, cleared up a lot of confusion because it can be very confusing for the lay person who's thinking about going into therapy about, oh, am I supposed to ask for a type of therapy or do I have to look for this kind of therapist? Or, you know, these are the sort of questions that, that we get. I don't practice anymore. And I, I practice a different way of it, sort of cognitive neuroscience and communication pathology and trauma and it's different, slightly different. So with all, what's really great is for people to actually have a little a broader understanding and if they want one specific approach and it's not working, they can find other therapists. And that's two questions here. The one is, do you find that most therapists are specialized in one or most tend to be more integrative and focused like on what is the need of the client kind of thing? In other words, there's so much crossover in all these techniques, that all these names that we've mentioned and the base, even the def- as you define them, there's a t- tremendous amount of crossover with slight angles that are different, except for like CBT is radically different, for example, to psychotherapy where you know, it's like fixed little techniques versus let's dig around a bit. But for the lay person, what, how would you advise them to look for a therapist, an integrative therapist, or should they 
look at a specific type of therapy and, and think, well, that relates to more to what I think I would suit or what would your advice be? I think first and foremost, it starts with an evaluation with yourself of, okay, what is the main thing that I'm struggling with, right? That's and good. if you're noticing that you're dealing with a lot of memories around traumatic events, or you're really struggling with getting up in the morning and you feel like you might be depressed or really anxious, or you know, you're starting to have a lot of obsessive thoughts or your relationships are in turmoil, I would start by identifying what that is first. Very good. That's and good. Make a list. Don't be afraid to write down what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And when you look for a therapist on psychology today or a directory in your area. It's important to make sure that one, the therapist that you look for is someone that you can feel connected to because all of the therapies and the modalities, the research says that they work amazingly to help, you know, create space for healing and wellness and to teach people skills. But time and time again, the research around psychotherapy and treatment is that it's the relationship. It's the relationship. Yeah. That's like the most important thing of therapy is the relationship. Yeah. If you don't trust your therapist, then none Mm. of this is going to work. You're Mm. not going to open up to your deepest, most fearful parts of yourself or be vulnerable enough to make real change. So I think, you know, make sure that you have a, a connection with them, identify what it is that you're working with and ask questions because not every therapist is as skilled at marketing how amazing they are, right? Yes. Like they put out a few things and think, okay, that's what clients want to see. But when we get trained as therapists, we don't get trained in how to put ourselves out there to clients. We get trained in how to do the work. And so exactly. it, it really is also, you know, a part on the therapist to be able to clearly and succinctly describe what it is that they do and be able to back that up with the evidence and the training and the competency behind that. But it's also in the part of you, the individual, to ask questions that matter to you. I've had clients ask me, what music do I listen to? What's the last song you, you, you sang in the shower? You know, like, what's your approach to wellness? And, you know, they're not really yeah. asking me about can you help me with this CBT? They're really asking me, are you the person I can trust? Ah, okay. The place I need to go. And they need to know they can relate to you because then they can, there's, a, there's that relational level and then they're able to then feel that they can open up. That's incredibly good advice. Thank you. Because that's something, I know people are getting more and more open to the idea of therapy, which is so good. But I love it's it. Lot, yeah, that is. It's really, it, there's been such a shift, you know, it's, and, and I've watched this over the 38 years that I've been in this world of mind-brain research from people going, doing very keen to talk to then the whole med- biomedical reductionistic model to you, you're an it and it's a disease and, you know, it's stigma and everything now back to, hey, listen, we all suffer. We're all human. Let's help each other. And there are professionals out there that can help. So it's a nice arc that it's done. And unfortunately, we are on the better side of the arc. That was for a time, there was a really bad low down swing and it hasn't helped with mental health. So it's really great that, 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 that this is available for people. Well, thank you for that. Okay. So I love that. What are the main issues that you work with? So the types of issues that I normally work with are, you know, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, body dysmorphia. I have a little bit of experience working in Boston within a specific LGBTQIA health center. So I do a lot of work with trans youth, trans community, and really around just mood dysregulation and and personality Mm -hmm. identity development. That would be in a the areas that short story on. long. 
what I do. That's wonderful. And I also, you're also very good at explaining about the people pleasing. That's something that I notice in your posts and things you talk a lot about. So this is such a big issue. And I think at some point in every person's life, there's been a people pleasing moment, if not maybe one too many. So can you talk a little bit about what is people pleasing and how can we identify that we are people pleasing and how can we fix that and change that in our, in our lives? People pleasing to me is really a form and a way of connecting with others. And most of the time I notice it come up as a result of childhood emotional needs not being met or, you know, having an unpredictable parent who struggled with their own emotions. We learn really quickly as children and young adults and adults when our caregivers and the people in our environment have specific needs to create harmony and peace in order for our needs to then get met. Mm. If you can imagine a parent coming home from work and they're extremely emotionally overwhelmed, well-meaning, mm. but you know that you're not going to get the care and the attention that you need as a child unless that parent is feeling good. So you learn really quickly how to make sure that their needs are met in order for you to get your needs met. And we adapt to these sensitivities in others almost instinctively, right? As humans, we're really adaptive and intuitive individuals and people. And, you know, when we are taught that keeping other people happy is important for us to be happy, that makes a really uncomfortable link Mm. between if I'm going to get what I need, I have to make sure that everyone else is okay. So it's personally Mm. motivated, but historically made. And so to develop a sense of understanding around your emotional needs and what matters to you, your values is one of the first places I start with any client. You know, we'll go through assertiveness scripts on how to state your needs to others, to partners. You know, everything that may not seem like it is connected is connected in some way because your emotional needs come up in so many different places. Negotiating a job interview, for example, you know, talking to your partner about, you know, schedules. It's natural to have needs and emotions, but it's also important to develop self-care and self-nurturing activities that allow you to turn reflexively towards your own needs first and foremost and let go of some of the shame, the blame, and the the negative beliefs about self that come up when you decide to do so. Mm, so well explained. That's really, really good. So what happens about the, the p- person who, okay, it's both sides. So you find a lot of it's motivated from childhood. There's so much, as we know, there's so many. And I think poor parents do try. I mean, I'm a mother of four too, and you really try hard and you can make so many mistakes and, and you do so many good things too. So people pleasing can come from both sides because there's, in, in, in my experience, it's also been in when I practice with mothers and fathers who were trying to keep their kids happy. So it kind of works the other end as well. So can you talk a bit about that as well? Well, from the other side. Have you encountered that as well? Absolutely. It's a cycle. And I think, you know, some of it really is this intergenerational. I think a lot of people now are talking about generational trauma. And I think everyone believes, and not everyone, but a lot of people believe that trauma comes from these big, major events in which you maybe witnessed or experienced like huge violence, or, you know, there's a situation. I often get clients say, you know, oh, I don't know if that's really traumatic or that's really impacted me, but here we are talking about it every session, right? And Mm -hmm. you're having a lot of symptoms around it. So I think 
it's important to recognize that as a parent too, you're reacting to not just your children, but your own experiences of being parented, Mm -hmm. right? Your own experiences of how to negotiate what you can do in the home. And everybody is trying their best. That is the assumption Mm -hmm. I take with every client. That's so good. Everybody is doing their best. Everyone's doing the best that they can. And so if that assumption is the foundation and there's this unconditional positive regard for the individual who's sitting in therapy, describing, kind of opening up their life to you, then you can really start to compassionately and gently pry open some of these past experiences that may inform and ultimately impact not just how they experience their parents, but their experience as a parent, their experience in their workplace, their experience, you know, with friendships, their relationships. And that's where the relational cultural piece for me comes in because, you know, it's so much about the relationship and culture being not just the mechanism for healing, but the space and place for healing. Mm -hmm. I really like that. I love the fact that you, how it starts with, you know, what are the assumptions that you both coming to the party with? What's the background of both sides? It's not just the one side. There's always, and that the inherently people are wanting to help each other. The intentions are good on both sides. You know, everyone's trying trying their best, you know, and sometimes with what you've got and it's to have compassion for both the person you're trying to please and the person that you are who is trying, who is trying to do the pleasing sort of thing. So it's a combination there. Right. And I think with people pleasing, especially, it's important to recognize that you're not absolved from accountability too, right? When you identify your Mm. needs, you have to make sure that, you know, you're, you're creating space for yourself to look critically and reflexively at yourself, because no matter what you do in therapy, no matter the gems that your therapist says, or how much you learn, unless you go back into your life and you apply them, nothing's going to happen. And Mm. so I empower clients to say, you know, they're like, what do I do next? And I, (laughs) I say, you know, I could tell you a lot of things. I may have opinions about it. I may have lots of thoughts about what you should do next, but ultimately, I'm not going home with you. So what do you think? Right. Mm, And that that turns them into not just teaching them about people pleasing, but actually modeling a way for them to turn towards themselves first, even before they look to me. Right. Mm. And that's kind of the, the relationship that I want to build with my clients in therapy to know that they can disagree with me. They can push back. You know, we can have, bits and pieces of conflict, because this is what shows up in your life. And my role is not to be a tabula rasa and always just Mm. project things back, right? A blank slate. It's, It's to be that person that empowers change through modeling the types of relationships, modeling the types of education and the spaces for healing that you needed in your life. Before we continue with today's episode, I want to tell you about a life-changing product that everyone needs, Blue Blocks Glasses. I just finished writing my latest book, which will be out in March 2021, and spent countless nights writing and researching till the early mornings. I can honestly say this would not have been possible without Blue Blocks' blue light blocking glasses. Before using Blue Blocks glasses, I used to get the worst headaches staring at my computer and phone, which would also make me more moody and compromise my work and deplete my energy. After interviewing Andy, the founder of Blue Blocks, I realized just how important blocking artificial blue light is for mental and physical health. 
I cannot stress enough how these glasses have changed my life and made hard work a little less painful. Get 15% off your order today when you use the code DRLEAF at checkout. Just go to blueblocks.com and use the code DRLEAF at checkout. The link and details will be in the show notes. You've hit on such an important point because we've, we've become a nation of over-therapeutized. You know, we talk about people going for therapy, but at the same time, there is a lot of research showing that this is an over-therapeutized nation and everyone is coached and therapy. You know, people need to go to therapy, but I think there's also the mindset Then you've identified that when you said that it really like struck a chord is that people shouldn't be going to therapy to get a fix. You know, it's not like you, they can't come to Megan. Okay, Megan, here is my problem. What must I do? And there's your little tablets, you know, tablet in terms of the technique and go take it and now, whoops, quick fix. No. And and that's where it's over therapy. There's a transference of responsibility from, and there's, I'm sure you've read a lot about this. There's such a lot of, of problems with that. And it's come from the authoritarian biomedical model where you do what you're told, you know, and that's carried through into the therapy and coaching arena too. And the counseling arena, that really concerns me. I don't know if that's something that you've noticed and that concerns you as well? I think it it can get caught up a little bit with the marketing and, and the branding and the trying to retain business in this really oversaturated market, right? Everybody wants to stand out. Everybody wants to be the person that can help you. And you may have very well said (laughs) skills, right? To say like, okay, like I can really help someone. I can do this. And that's not to dissuade people from entering the market and becoming a therapist or a coach or, or what have you. But it's important to make sure that you define yourself first and foremost in terms of your competency, in terms of your ethical framework, how are you going to make decisions within the relationships that you mm-hmm. build and how are you going to safely carry people to and from these really difficult and delicate things that they're sharing with you. So as for me, like I always start with, okay, what's the relationship and what am I bringing to the table that could potentially impact me today? So it's Friday, July 10th. I wake up in the morning after this, I have clients. So I'm thinking, how am I feeling? Is there something I need to attend to before I go and take other people on that journey? Yeah. And so it's a active use of self that's really, really important when you are wanting to look for a therapist, ask them, you know, how do you take care of yourself? How do you manage these needs so that you're not just getting someone who's going to tell you what to do and is responsive just to their environment without really Mm. taking things in, digesting it, making an informed decision based on best practices. Mm, That's really good. Okay. So that leads me directly into the next question. And you set the question up. What do you do for your own mental self-care? Because giving out all day to people is extremely draining. You know, you can, you can, the tank can run dry very quickly. And if you can, and you can run on technique because you've got the education and you've got the skill and you've got the experience that's so there, but there's that other component of the of the uniqueness in the factor. How do you look after your mental health? That's a great question. I spend a lot of time with my dog. <laughs> oh, I love that. You spend a lot of time with what dog do you have? He's a little rescue. His name is oh, Magic. Magic. Oh, that's he so cute. Is, he has like this intuitive way of knowing when to waltz into my office and to kind of snuggle under my feet. And it's For me, I use that as my cue to take a break. So I make sure that 
in between clients that I set boundaries around my time. So I run a 50 minute session and I rarely go over. So I make sure that that's 50 minutes of effective and useful time for you. But I need that 10 minutes to take a drink of water, to step mm-hmm. out on my balcony because I'm working from home or, you know, to water my plants, to, you know, write in a guided journal or to read a little bit. Sometimes I'll pick up a book and, you know, read a quick paragraph and that will revitalize me and and reinvigorate me to step into the next session. And then outside of the workday, I think for me, it's really focusing on the body. I hold a lot of my stress in my body, like many people. And so (laughs) underneath my a desk. I have little balls for the soles of my feet. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Release tension. I love a good heat pack in the evening. And, you know, really just making sure that I'm moisturized and focusing on like yeah. basics. Eating yeah. Well, like yeah. it seems simple, but there are little things yeah. that make such a huge difference for how you feel. And if you keep up a routine of attending to you know, the aches and pains and the bits and bobs, it starts to feel more like a, like a routine that you can instinctively go to rather than feeling, okay, I'm upset. I'm stressed. I'm overwhelmed. I'm burnt out. Now what? Yeah. It says you, instead of getting to that crash point, you actually proactive in the process, which is extremely important. Yeah. Oh no, I love that. I love that. Do you, so you, do you find you set boundaries around your time as well? Like, okay, now we finished work and now I'm going to switch off and not think about I try my very, very hardest. I, you know, have a little bit of a disclaimer in my email saying like, these are the hours of my work. If I respond to you outside of them, it is an exception, not a rule. Mm. And, you know, I will, you know, make sure to get back to you at the next business day when I come home and I'm hanging out with my husband, I'm not checking my phone or reading my emails, you know, Last night we watched a movie and we just moved into our new place. So we hung oh. some paintings. So it was you know, fun stuff. Yeah, that's really nice, important. relaxing evening activities that don't really have anything to do with work. So if you're really struggling to differentiate from work, some of the questions I even ask clients yeah. with their self-care is what is your post-work life like? Is it just about decompressing from work or is it about cultivating something new? That is so good. What is your post-work life like? Is it cultivating something new or is it just decompressing? And sometimes it's decompress and cultivate something new, but as long as there's a a balance. So, and are you pretty good having, and I'm asking these questions because I think it's very interesting for, you know, you've had the training, you've, and you're in this world of how to manage mental health. And I think very often the people that do this are the ones that burn out quickest because we don't always apply what we're supposed to be applying so i think it's really great that yeah yeah exactly so you you have you learned to self-regulate enough that you can actually recognize the symptoms of when you on that road to potential burnout and do you rectify do you push through what do you do much earlier in my career i didn't notice it i think you're trained very early to like i said take care of everyone else before you attend to yourself you know i can do this only after I finish these notes or only after this session or only after this. And I think I recognize that I am the space and place for my values and my goals. And I have to take ownership over that. So when I'm taking ownership, I'm also identifying what is going wrong when it's going wrong, Mm. doing things about it before it happens. So for me, burnout looks like compassion fatigue, 
which is something that is really scary for therapists, but mm. it's a real thing. It's, you know, being like, I don't know if I have the same depth of feeling that I normally do. And that's mm. terrifying for a therapist who is really devoted to their clients because you're like, wow, something is up. I'm not caring as much. Mm. And that's making a real difference for me. And I hear this all the time from other therapists, younger therapists who say, I don't know if I'm cut out for this work. You know, I've got to quit. Like maybe I need to do something else. This isn't for me. When I've seen the work that they do and I know that they love their work, yet they're not paying attention to how burnout is creating the script whether or not they can do anything, they're competent. So whether or not they're exhausted enough to do another session, how many are they booking in a day? And so mm. I think it's not just about the abstract attending to your emotions and, and focusing on the body. It's also about, you know, how do you structure your day that works for you, not for anything, anybody else? It doesn't mm. matter who That's else. good advice is doing whatever in their day in private mm-hmm. practice. We all have different schedules and we yeah. all have different needs, but if it doesn't work for you, then don't do it. And I learned that really early. I'm not going to book eight sessions back to back and then do notes and then do this. Like I'm going to make sure that my life is balanced. And for me, that's a nice, maybe five to six people in a day, sometimes four, but I'm not going to push myself to do more than what's going to make the work most effective for me and Mm. ultimately most effective for me. That's excellent advice because, you know, we have this, being in this whole mind-brain research area, one thing I know for certain, and also I practice for 25 years, and if you don't do what you've just described and you book these patients back to back, it's, you might be fine for a while, but eventually it will catch up. And then you, and you don't, you said, you think you dislike your work, but you actually don't, you just need a break. And the way I always explain it to people is that, I mean, thoughts are real things. They, they look like trees in the brain and thoughts are, thoughts are driving our, our, our mind built thoughts and our mind never stops. That's the whole thing. Even when you sleeping at night, your mind is still working and but your brain gets tired. So if you don't rest your brain, but your mind's still going, so then you get this message of the brain saying, hey, I'm tired. And the mind saying, well, I'm still going. And then that conflict creates burnout. And, you know, it's, and it's a very real physical change that happens in the body. And we see this with the neuroscientific tools that we can use. And I, look, I always look, I do mind-body research. So it's always the psych with the physiology, with the neurophysiology. Never, You can't see them as separate. And there's just such a, an obvious link. So to be able to show people, hey, listen, when you are at that point, you burn out pretty strong chance your homocysteine levels are going to start rising which means you're going to get low-grade inflammation across your body which means you're going to have brain damage literally because these toxic thoughts always use this tree of overworking etc are going to the thoughts of like trees are going to damage your brain you know just a little things like that are so valid so i'm glad we dived into this because you've spoken about it as a therapist who's helping people with mental health but what the the the, the rules literally the guidelines you've given apply to anyone in business anyone working anyone in a day is, you know, they're really good, valid things. So now when it pivots to the question of of um, understanding the empath, which is also something that you talk quite a lot about. So can you talk about that, define it? What does it mean? What does it look like? Why do we need to be concerned? And I love that you mentioned empaths because I consider myself one. And I don't think I even 
gave myself the language for this until very recently. A couple of years, I've heard people talk a lot. Yeah, it's becoming, it's, it's very in fashion now, if, if I can say that. It's very much a, yeah. It's like a little bit of a, of a moment for empaths. Yes. But I think how I normally describe it is you're a super feeler vacuum cleaner. and so, Super feeler vacuum cleaner. I love it. <laughs> it's, it's a little trite, but it, it's no, that's very one descriptive. of the the most accurate ways of describing what someone who is an empath is. Because remember that empathy is a tool and you use empathy as a tool to connect with people, to demonstrate caring, to show that you understand and to develop relational moments with individuals, organizations, groups, yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you are an empath and you're really struggling with that super feeling, vacuum cleaning kind of phenomenon, that superpower that you have, yeah. you may notice real difficulties in differentiating others and yourself and the emotions and tensions from your environment, from the emotions and tensions within. Because like a vacuum mm-hmm. cleaner, you are sucking everything, everything up, up. Mm-hmm. and you are just taking it all in. But the thing with empaths that you really need to understand is that when you open up that vacuum cleaner bag, you can't just avoid it and throw it in the trash. You have to actually pick apart what's useful for you and to yeah. take ownership over that. And so, you know, I think these sensitivities need awareness and I do a lot of boundary work, mm. and values clarification with people who are struggling with their empathy and feeling so much all the time, always. There's lots of education that I can give as a therapist towards the function of an emotion or the function or the purpose of an emotion. Because in a lot of clients, I see them sometimes not even really need too much work to understand it because they're empaths, right? Like yes. they know. So they get it. They get it. They They've know. They've sucked it up. <laughs> they're, they're, it's there, but it's. They don't know what to do with what they've got. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you you can make insight and growth and and shifts in how you take in information and understand, is this mine or is this from someone else? Because I think when someone is upset in a room or a friend is having an issue and then you start to feel really sad too or frustrated or irritable and you take that out on someone else, it may be worth asking yourself, is this my feeling to own? And is this something that I that I generated on my, on, on myself. And so I think that insight is, is valuable in so many ways. That's fantastic. So it's a post-mortem. I, I, I developed in my research, I, I developed a theory of mind, the non-conscious, conscious, et cetera, subconscious, and developed techniques using brain science and the mind connection on how to do mind management. So literally how to build, how to wire thoughts out and in and what it does and everything. And in that process, I talk about doing a mental autopsy. And that's what you're describing, literally, except you're doing a trash bag autopsy. <laughs> you're doing it. So you got to put it all on the table and decide, okay, the ones that are, whatever, there's the ones that are, so that it will like I can I visualize like a whole lot of trash being emptied and the things that are solid would be your things whereas the things that are all fuzzy and whatever those would be things you need to get rid of because that's not what you so once they've identified that once they've done that little bit of a trash autopsy thing what is the next step because they still absorb that into who they are and that's impacted them so they're sitting with that person's emotions plus their own emotions and it's very difficult to deal with and that leads to tremendous burnout also it leads to tremendous anxiety and we see that in the brain 
brain and we see that in the body and we see that even in the telomeres because I just had a, did a clinical trial recently and in fact one of our subjects one of the things they said was they were a caregiver they major caregiver looking after in, in um, Alzheimer's and so on and their telomere on the DNA had significantly shortened which was and it's a significant sign of stress and yet they loved what they're doing but they were burning out now that's a t- classic case of an empath who's absorbed it's also the caring but they've absorbed the pain of the family and absorbed the pain of the people that used to remember how that person used to function and you can just see everything from everyone had gone into that person so what would you tell someone like that in terms of once you've done the trash autopsy what would you tell someone like that I think it's important to establish a consistent and sustainable routine for boundaries and not just on what you're keeping out, but what you're keeping in, like what boundaries aren't just what you say no to. It's about what you say yes to. And so when you say no to taking on an emotion or a feeling or responsibility, or you identify, okay, wow, I'm really personalizing a lot what's happening in like a caregiver, you know, experience, and you've identified it and you've named that story that's coming up in your mind and you've challenged it, the feelings are still there. And feelings are for feeling. If you're feeling it, you're doing it right. They're not for dissolving. They're not for erasing. They're for feeling. And so when people understand that that's the right way is to feel, they lose a little bit of the pressure and the resistance and ultimately the tension and chronic stress around trying to get rid of it. Mm. So it's about dropping the struggle with your emotions Mm -hmm. and dropping your struggle with that also involves setting a boundary, right? Setting a limit Mm -hmm. with yourself about what am I going to take in today? What's helpful? What's going to get me to either do my job effectively or to talk to this person or communicate what I need? And what am I saying yes to? My peace, my energy, Mm -hmm. my ability to nurture myself later. Mm -hmm. What? is important. And I think that's the work that is ongoing because you may have processed and explored that with one situation and they're like, okay, got it. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, a couple of weeks later, they're like, I'm stressed. And I'm like, wait a minute, we've done this. You've done this. Yeah. They didn't do it. Mm -hmm. They didn't continue. It's about understanding that the psychological flexibility doesn't just apply to one situation in your life and that the ways in which you do things are more important than what it is that you're doing. Content is not as important as process. Mm, so I good. really say to clients, drop the whys, drop the, the whats and ask yourself how. Yep, how I agree with I you. Mm-hmm. That's so important. Oh gosh, that's so important. I love that you said the process and the hows. You have to go because that's the only way you're going to move forward. I think people get so stuck, and then they get into the ruminating patterns. Because if I'm asking why, 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 there's a, a why needs to lead to a how. If the why is staying as a why, it doesn't. You don't move forward. You have to. You have to progress and pro. And you know, you see that if people are doing that in the brain, if they just if they just getting stuck on the unconscious level, which is where the tension will rise up. You see that in the brain if people are why, why, why instead of shifting the why into a how. We see little bursts of red in the brain where there's too much high beta, like little multiple foci, and it impacts how they 
the cognitive flexibility. They get stuck and especially then starts hovering around the middle of the brain. You see a growth. You see a sort of growth of the redness around the middle of the brain. So you actually see that, but then you see someone shift. They manage their mind and they start shifting and that just goes away. You know, so your brain's so neuroplastic, it just responds. So what, what you've just described though is something that's very interesting as well and it's the carryover effect. It, people are great in therapy, but then they get out there into the day-to-day life and as you said, two weeks later, they come back with the same issue. So that's carryover is, is a huge part of, of therapy as well, isn't it? Getting people to... Teaching use. people the process and the system yeah. that maintains their wellness rather than the insight or the golden you know, ticket to, to what wellness is. It's less about these moments. Like you're going to have them and they're exciting. They feel good. I know what that's like, but it's less of the of that and more of the the chunking through how do I actually sustain this? How do I create space for it as a system, as a process? Exactly. I totally agree with that. And that's where a lot of my work is focused on. The therapy is the catalyst. How do you manage your, your life between next week's session and now? You know, and it's the day-to-day, the moment, the mind management of the day-to-day. So that's where I focus a lot of my work because of, of studying carryover and the and the poorness of carryover. In my early in my early years of research, I did a lot of work on carryover because it's just such a problem. And people are great in therapy and you can, oh yeah, they can they're ready to go now, but then they fall straight back in again to the to the old patterns. So so interesting. Gosh. Okay, there's there's so many more questions I have to ask you, but we'll have to do another conversation sometime. So where can people, it's been great. I've loved this. Where can people get hold of you and find out more about you? You can follow me on Instagram. I usually post some educational pieces about mental health. I try to break things down and I share a lot about, you know, what might be helpful at Thrive with Meg, Thrive underscore with Meg. And Other than that, you can find me online on my website at watsonpsychotherapy.com and you can email me, shoot me a line. I love to hear from people who have questions and, and thoughts. And if you're in the Toronto area and you're looking for a therapist, you can reach out to me. I have a, a bit of a waiting list, but I'm always open to sending people resources and connecting with them, even That's if they wonderful. I might not be able to want the one to see them right away. Fantastic. Well, you're in the Toronto area and we'll put all those links in the show notes. And thank you so much for your great insights. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, I feel like wonderful. your research and, and everything you do is so invaluable. So thank you for what you oh. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's, I'm glad that we can all connect and share and grow together because that's really what the purpose is, is to grow and share our combined knowledge and, and, you know, teach the world how to manage their minds. If we manage our minds, we can manage our lives, you know, so <laughs> and be better people. So thank you so much. My pleasure. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. 
I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leith. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.